Oh, hey there, listeners and juicers. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you have fallen in love with the Draw Your Dice podcast and want to help put some new fruit on the table, but don't feel comfortable making a monthly commitment, well, you can support the show via the ACAST supporter feature. No gift too large, nor too small. Just click on the link in the show description and know that I am sending you the strongest hug when you do so. Think about how you can make your game more accessible and look at what people are doing. And if you don't know, hire a disability consultant, depending on your project. I think even if if it's a $100 budget project, it would be a good investment for you to pay someone 50 bucks for an hour consultation just on what can you be doing? What are the free resources out there? I'll put out that all of the tools I use to make the accessible versions, I I paid $0 for. My name is Jeremy Gage, and welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast. This is an educational show involving all things tabletop role-playing industry. Listen alongside me as we hear from creators, entrepreneurs, and supporters about their personal best practices, principles, and philosophies. I encourage anyone from the budding game designer to a seasoned publisher and everyone in between to sit down with us and enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast. As you heard in the intro, I am Jeremy Gage. But as always, in every intro, it's not about me. I would like to welcome to the show a person who is crushing it on the environmental front, being a water resources engineer. I've brought the creator of Hanukkah Goblins here, which we will talk about amongst many other things. I would like to welcome to the show... Max Pfeffer. Oh my god. <laughs> Long time fans. <laughs> Finally on the show. I Finally know. Finally on the show. We're here, Jeremy. <laughs> this is when I know that I've made it. <laughs> Hi, Max. How are you today? I am doing great. How are you, Jeremy? I am doing better. We had a kerfuffle earlier when it came to audio things. What kerfuffle? Now... It's a little bit of a kerfuffle. I'm allowed to admit it. This is live, everybody. I do this live. Yeah, uh, we're real people here. Yeah, exactly. We're not robots putting on a podcast, <laughs> humans. Max, as always for the opening of the show, would you give a brief introduction of who you are and how you present yourself to the world? Absolutely. So my name is Max Pfeffer. I am a water resources engineer by day and a tabletop role-playing game designer by night. I live here in the unseated List John Ohlone land which most people now know of as Oakland, California, kind of California born and raised game so far. Like Jeremy mentioned, uh, the big one most people know is Hanukkah Goblins, which is a lovely small tabletop role-playing game that focuses on a a little troop of Hanukkah Goblins where you're, you're exploring your time through Hanukkah and you're role-playing as Jewish goblins. And we'll get into more of that. So that's been my big game so far. I've done one other Jewish game called Remembering Grusau and actually a beak, feather, and bone hack with, for the the favorite designer on this show almost, Tyler Crumrine <laughs> in Possible Worlds. We we love them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's that's kind of been my big one so far. And then part of where my interest going forward is doing uh, nature-themed games, games that connect people to their surrounding ecosystems. So pulling my water background in so... That's something you will be seeing coming forward that I haven't done before. Oh, oh, (laughs) 
so excited for that. For anyone that like has listened to the Kaleidoscope devlog things that I haven't done in a very long time, but I promise you I'm still game writing. I love solar punk and I love all the ideas about like hope punk and sort of changing the world through our symbiosis with uh, nature. So I really look forward to these future projects of yours, Max. In addition to that beautiful introduction, would you also talk about sort of your RPG lineage? Sort of how did you get started in the discipline hobby, whatever those want to call it at home? And what was sort of the first thing that triggered like, oh, I could also write or make games? Yeah, totally. I think I have a pretty common story to a lot of people who have been on this show. But yeah, so I I grew up playing board games and other games with my family. Like growing up, we were some of the early adopters of Settlers of Catan when it was, I think, came out in the late, early, mid, early 90s. And then we were playing it kind of late 90s, early 2000s. So before it kind of became the, the big hit that it is now in the past kind of 10 or 15 years and from there, like, that's kind of where my games background came from. And as a kid, like me and one of my best friends growing up, we were always really creative and wanted to tell stories. We'd come up with like our own weird games ourselves and just be these like weird, amazing kids that we were, we got to be. And, but I didn't really get into tabletop role-playing game until high school that my brother was playing Dungeons and Dragons with his friends and they were playing 3.5 edition and they were nice enough to invite me a couple times and I would come and play with their campaign. And it was just such a fun experience where like we would go to somebody's house in the evening, like we'd have snacks, we'd have this campaign. And that's one thing I just love in general about tabletop role-playing games and just games in general is it's a, it's an event that we get to when we were doing things in person, we got to look forward to gathering with our friends and, bringing food if that's something you wanted to do and sharing around a table. And I thought that was a really cool experience. But the, I mean, the flip side with D is it's such a high barrier to entry for most people of like having a dungeon master and having the books and just even understanding the books and being able to tackle that cognitive load that D and D is. So I actually fell away from D and D through college because it was something I wanted to do, but I didn't have like timed to like make a campaign or like, I should say I didn't want to devote the time that mm-hmm. I, for me personally, I wasn't comfortable being a dungeon master. And that actually kind of comes into my game design philosophy as well. But like, I don't, I didn't feel the need to be like a, like an authority on this is what happened or like, this is the kind of game that you're going to be like, your characters are going to be playing so it was always really hard to like get something going. But now in my post-college years, I've had a, a couple friend groups that we we play D&D with one group, which is fine. But I was starting into indie games with uh, my best friend, Theo Rusmore, who was the editor for Hanukkah Goblins and is one of my best friends from college. And Theo was like, hey, do you want to play Sleepaway by Jay Dragon? And it's like this really cool indie RPG about like sleepaway camp and like weird cryptids and all that. And I was like, heck yeah, like that sounds awesome. And that was my first breakaway from really getting into something besides D and D and like really recognizing that there is a really cool market out there besides Dungeons and Dragons. And from there seeing something like sleepaway playing it for played it for months. Like we played it for a long time 
And then I was like, I want to do this myself. Like, this is like, you, you could see the diversity within uh, a game like sleep away and just being introduced to the whole world of itch was like, Whoa, this is actually something I can do. I can self publish games. I have cool ideas. Can I put my cool ideas out? And I mean, that the, the rest is where we are now. Like now I'm on my journey as a tabletop game designer. I, Max has the warmest energy Aww. I have ever experienced. Jeremy, and your energy's great. <laughs> it is. A good, thank you. But this isn't about me. I said that uh, <laughs> now 10 minutes ago. So sorry. I should have uh, listened. <laughs> yeah. I, I love the two things. Actually, when you're talking in your intro, you mentioned the territory in which I'm originally from California, different parts. I'm sure mm-hmm. I was born in Rosewood city in Northern California. I lived in the San Joaquin County area for nice. uh, 12 years by my, my kid life, essentially. Mm-hmm. But And I think we'll get into this when we start talking about Hanukkah goblins and sort of your design principles around your games. But I love that you sort of mentioned the territory in which it, you know, in that it rests upon, right? Because this country was not originally a European dominated one, right? It had a people and a place and a name prior to that. So I love sort of the history deep dive. Yeah. Oh, yes. It still does. Excuse me. Yeah. Yes. It, it absolutely still does. It just hasn't. It, it in not in a non faded away state, right? Like in a right. in a place where the mainstream populace is like, this is California, and it's always been California. Like that's not true, right? Yeah. We live on um, colonized. So I love. Land. Yeah, and I love that you sort of really take ownership of looking taking the deep dive into a history of anything uh fun fact this isn't the first time me and max have spoken in person (laughs) we had kind of a coffee date another time online coffee date everyone and we also played mahjong together and max's dissertation on (laughs) (laughs) mahjong was a great experience so i totally love that but i love that part about you i love that part about your sort of want to understand the traditions and why this became the way that it is today in addition to, I think, why a lot of us, a lot of the people who've been on these 30-odd episodes and everyone I make contact with, is I think role-playing games really set up a really nice ritual of social connection for people. And I know the online transition has been hard for people in the last year. Some games have fallen away, but new ones have risen. People have figured out how to use the tech to their advantage. So I, I also agree that, like, the thing... I think it's less about like D&D was the spark. It was more about finally finding a group of people to like have this ritual with and coming to the table and be like, man, I love the energy here. Right. I think that's like something to really take away from that particular icebreaker piece. So thank you for all that. Moving forward into getting to talk about the meat of all of this. Let's start with Hanukkah Goblins. Would you just give a brief intro of Hanukkah Goblins for the folks at home so they know what we're talking about? Also, if you haven't purchased this fucking game, then maybe you should go do it because it's really good. And it's a really like, I'm excited to learn about sort of the cultural information that it took to make this game anyways max go uh, go for it hit me with it hit us with yes it. hanukkah goblins <laughs> by max pfeffer what is this game well let me tell you it is My a magnum opus it is a tabletop role-playing game inspired by the very popular jewish children's book herschel in the hanukkah goblins by eric kimmel 
So this was a game. This was a book, like a storybook, about Herschel, who's a Jewish man, meeting all of these goblins who lived in a in a temple on a hill. So I that was a big story for me growing up. And when I was thinking about games I wanted to design, it just kind of came to me of like Hanukkah season was coming up, and I wanted to design this game. So what what is it about? Hanukkah Goblins is a game where you are role playing as Jewish goblins and it's taking up the game is taking place after the events of this book and you are Hanukkah goblins trying to bring Hanukkah cheer around to your surrounding village wherever you decide to play this game of like whatever setting you choose and two things I really wanted to tackle with this game first was subverting negative Jewish stereotypes that are out there that are surrounding goblins. The mm-hmm. second was bringing people into the culture, bringing people in to learn more about Judaism and to have it as a positive and semi-educational experience that I think one thing we can do, at least with Judaism, one big thing is teaching and sharing that we want to share our culture with people because the more people know about you and your culture, the the less oppression in hopes we face <laughs> down the road. Like it's definitely one positive aspect to it. So the game is you are role-playing as Jewish Hanukkah goblins. So even though you as a player, maybe whatever religious background you are, whether that be no religion or you're an Orthodox Jew, you get to role-play as Jewish goblins. And what I did with the game was having lots of information throughout the game on what does it mean to be playing a Jewish character and trying to really approach that from a place of kindness and approaching it from what if somebody doesn't know anything, but they want to, they want to start learning. And here I am. I I want to offer this information to you as a starting point. So the, this game is, it's a small game because I, sorry, word, <laughs> words. I wanted to bring in people who had not had a lot of experience with tabletop role-playing games that you as whatever tabletop role-playing expert you are, you may read it and be like, oh, there's no, there's only a couple dice tables in here. Like, what is this? And for me, that was actually very purposeful that I could have written a game with the most intense mechanics of like me- mechanizing a Hanukkah goblin, but the purpose of the game too was to bring people in that people who first Jewish people who had never played a tabletop role playing game, they could pick up this game and start having this, this collaborative storytelling experience. And then on the flip side for non-Jewish people who just want to learn more about the culture, it's also approachable in that way. I love that. And I love that that was sort of the grounding principle for you in the, in the, in Hanukkah Goblins, in the content, you talk about in the text that a lot of the storytelling is through questions, right? Mm-hmm. And I actually have had a couple conversations in my own personal social circles about how this is my personal feelings, and this is how I'm sort of like navigating myself as a, as a marginalized individual. But I am sort of against the concept of cancel culture, like mm-hmm. the sense that like, we need to just kind of like write people off or X them out when they make kind of like 
it's hard to say like large mistakes because it's going to be relative to the person that is viewing the mistake. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to minimalize or dismiss anyone's traumas or experiences. But basically what I'm getting to is that we don't do a lot of like conversating Mm -hmm. anymore. We don't like really come to the table and say like, Hey, why do you feel like that? How can we understand each other? Like coming from that place off the rip instead of coming from, a place of like, I need to defend my agenda. I need to come out of the woodworks and be like, Hey, you're wrong for like saying this thing. You're damaging people. And instead, like really trying to figure out how to ask leading questions and how to figure out how to talk to other individuals to maybe close that gap on oppressing others or assuming stereotypes or emboldening in medias that paint us in a really strange picture that for some people, that's their only experience with marginalized cultures. And so that's Mm -hmm. the only like truth quote unquote that they have to go from, which if we're, you know, if we're always sort of on the defensive of like, get out of here, you're, you're damaging our cultures. It's like, well, yes, I don't want to say that's wrong, but on the other side, it's like, don't just sort of shut the door on someone, right? Maybe talk to them through the door. Per, right. per chance. <laughs> but yeah, I, I what I like about the your attempt here and the book is that it's education through the lens of like, I know these things exist out in the world. And this game is to help you have a conversation sort of subverting those things, right? Because in I took the book's advice, and I listened to the the story of Herschel and the Hanukkah goblins. <laughs> and in the story, the Hanukkah goblins are highly against the the acts of Hanukkah. They try to prevent the candle lightings. They The hero of the story, Herschel, tries to use Hanukkah traditions to trick or entertain the goblins so that he can go on with the rituals at hand. And in your book, you sort of made the goblins to be someone, individuals who are inquisitive about the traditions and sort of like, ooh, I wonder what's going on over there. Or what is that? I'd like to learn more about that, right? And sort of subverting that trope of being sort of demons against the practices into being just like sort of curious outsiders who genuinely want to figure out what's going on. So I think that's very beautiful in that. And I think what we're going to end up talking a lot about the implicit mechanics of the book, because as you said, the, the book doesn't have heavy like role mechanics that's coming from. And I've had conversations with other guests about, you know, some games in the indie scene make assumptions that this is like your 10th role-playing game that you're picking up. So we don't need to explain to you what a role-playing game is. Right. And I think that's so much farther from the truth, especially in this, our year of the Lord 2021, (laughs) where D D is getting more and more popular every day, but D D is not the best first like role-playing game for people as we, as I've talked about many times that you sort of mentioned in your experiences. So it's nice to have people who consider this to be the first like onboarding process to learning the discipline, right? So some of my follow-up questions are how much of this game sort of came from kind of innately from your own traditions or from your own experiences? How much did you have to research to really bring this game together? Sure. Yeah. So I'm Jewish myself and was raised Jewish. I had a bar mitzvah and do, and I actually keep kosher on a day to day so I definitely do consider myself a, a part of the culture and, and part of the religion, something I understand. So I think the core, like the, if you want to call it the feeling of the game, I, mm-hmm. I had that on, on lock of like, I know mm-hmm. what kind of Jewish experience I want to curate. And it's interesting you brought up the questions aspect because 
a big aspect of Judaism is you're constantly asking questions. You're constantly Mm -hmm. trying to question your norms and question what you're Mm -hmm. doing and asking other people what they're doing. And that kind of came out as an, it just kind of came out when I was designing the game. I wasn't really intending the question aspect, but Mm -hmm. I wanted people to think about like what they're doing and and use these questions to help new tabletop role players to, to have a a really nice collaborative experience. So the the questions kind of just came out of the the Jewish side in me. It didn't come out as intentional, which was an interesting, like looking back after I wrote it, but yeah. So the, the Jewish side of the game. So researching the facts was definitely something I knew a lot of the information, but I needed to make sure I was saying the exact right thing. I wasn't Mm -hmm. writing something that could be potentially harmful because I think that is one tricky thing of if you are designing a game based off of identity, you are taking that ownership with that game of if you want to put out a Jewish game, you need to make sure the portrayal of Judaism that you're putting out there is something you're willing to defend and something that is not going to cause harm. And that was, I think, probably the most stressful aspect of this game was, gosh, am I like am I putting out something that could make someone really upset? Because mm-hmm. what I did with the game was Herschel and the Hanukkah goblins was this great story that kids really liked. And it was, it's actually still a very much part of the American Jewish, like Hanukkah tradition is like reading this with your kids. But the mm-hmm. irony of the story is it actually reinforces negative Jewish stereotype. Well, Jewish stereotypes, like in general stereotypes are negative, but mm-hmm. it's putting out harmful stereotypes out there of Jews have long been scapegoated as scapegoated in goblin characters and in dwarven characters. And that Mm. has been inherited from the J.R.R. Tolkien era of fantasy that goblins and orcs have been around a long time. But J.R.R. Tolkien is a noted racist author and put out Mm. a lot of very harmful things to lots of marginalized communities and specifically the black community with orcs. That's been something Mm. that's been, very harmful since those that series has been out and it still continues to perpetuate. So those ideas were seeded from, from J.R.R. Tolkien's era. And Mm -hmm. these caricatures of goblins and dwarves have long been vehicles for anti-Semitism. So Mm -hmm. this book that is supposed to be this Jewish book actually reinforces those stereotypes of painting these evil goblins who are fat, stupid, greedy, selfish. These are all stereotypes that have been associated with Jewish people, which are like most stereotypes flat out wrong and harmful. And I wanted to subvert that with this book, be like, no Hanukkah goblins are these joyful, amazing little critters that they cause some mayhem, but it's always from a place of like asking questions and having fun and, being able to spread Jewishness around. And I really wanted to channel that with this game of like, no, I, we, we are going to be begin subverting these, these stereotypes. That's kind of step one of active activism in some ways is speaking up about negative portrayals and talking about the culture and how it's harmful. So that's kind of one, one aspect of the game was really portraying something that's very Jewish and genuinely Jewish, which is, mm-hmm hard because there are a lot of Jewish experiences out there. And I try to put this throughout the book as well. Like 
acknowledging that, I think I have a call out that's like diverse celebrations of Hanukkah, which talks about that. Uh, I come from the American Jewish pr- perspective, but there are Jews across the world. Like one of the coolest groups to me is Ethiopian Jews. They're a, a very mm-hmm. rich culture and have a very interesting history. And I think, I think in the book I put in about Afghanistan, Afghani Jews have like dishes of oil instead, which they light their Hanukkah, uh, mm. Hanukkah with instead of having candles and they would have the nine candles out for the helper candle in the eight days. And they would do that with uh, bowls of oil instead of candles. So trying to really bring in that I, I'm trying to put out a, a Jewish experience. That's not just the American Jewish experience, but recognizing there is all aspects of Judaism I'm trying to mm. not take ownership of that, but to make sure people know that there is a wide diversity within Hanukkah experiences in Judaism. Mm. Yeah, I think, and it's one of the things I, you know, I want to delve more into my black culture, right? Mm. Not just the American ones, but, you know, I did a, I did a ancestry.com situation a couple years back and, you know, to whatever information that ancestry.com truly has <laughs> about any of us in the Americas, it does state that like I have uh, Welsh and Congo ancestries and I'm like, okay, well, do I write, like, do I have the ability to, like, deep dive into sort of that lineage and do mm-hmm. I have like per like permissions, right? Like I think for right. me the word is permissions because it's like, ooh, I like how educated can I be to 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 do this? Like how educated do I have to be to execute inserting something that is a part of what I feel is an attack could be an attachment to me, but um, mm-hmm. really isn't like, honestly, at the end of the day, I'm American, right? Like in my, right. in my 30 years of living birthday coming up soon, 30 years of living <laughs> that, you know, I'm not African. I, I will probably never be African. I will always be American to, mm-hmm. for, for the most effect. Right. And so like, I want to recognize my black heritage, but it's like, what is, what is my black heritage being an American. You talk about like, this is a very like American Jewish focused book. So maybe like, is that, is that my permissions answer? Is that the thing Mm -hmm. I look for? But in addition to that, I think one of the things that I also loved is that you wanted to make sure that you weren't, because I think this is the question I wanted to follow up and ask of you. You talked about how you didn't want to create something that was going to be additive to the stereotypes or potentially like something you missed or didn't execute on textually to subvert those tropes the way you wanted to, right? The follow-up question sort of on that is when I had some other guests on the show and we've talked about design, putting your identity into your design, they had talked about that, you know, maybe this game isn't for everyone, right? Like this isn't an experience that everyone can like dive into or explore to get an idea of my culture, right? So do you feel like Hanukkah Goblins is a game maybe 80% designed for the Jewish experience to be experienced of a certain perspective of the Jewish experience to be experienced by other Jewish individuals and maybe like 20% for maybe someone else who really cares about learning about other cultures to come into? Or do you feel like this is a game that is potentially written for anyone to sort of come into this experience and sort of make new educated decisions about how they approach culture, this specifically being the American Jewish lens? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, I think when I had the game in, in mind, it was fit, 
some share of having Jewish tabletop game players see a Jewish game out there that was just very Jewish from the out front. Because since I kind of joined this itch industry, we'll put it that way, mm-hmm. of like of indie game designers, there are a lot of Jewish game designers out there that are amazing. Like I think first of all, I'd want to shout out Adira Slattery. Adira is amazing. Adira writes awesome, awesome games. And I Clap encourage at home you to, for Adira, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I encourage you to go back and listen to Adira's episode on this show because it was fantastic. But so that's one angle. Hopping back from the from the shadow because just yeah. Jewish tabletop game design is <laughs> awesome. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Having Jewish game players who are kind of like looking for games, having that representation, being able to see, oh my God, I can play a Jewish game and being able to lean into that with their own Jewish experiences. I think that's one customer in mind I was thinking, or like one, someone who might want to play this game. And the other aspect was someone who's always been curious about Judaism, or maybe knows a little bit and Mm -hmm. wants to have a game where they can start experiencing that a little bit and doing that in a safe way and, and doing it in a way where the author has given you permission to explore Mm -hmm. that. Cause I think that's, Mm -hmm. that's an important aspect of, when you're bringing a marginalized identity into a game, into a book, there needs to be some understanding of what, are, what can you do with this information? Do like, if it's a book, do I just want you to read it? Do I want you to read it and do something? And for my game in particular, I wanted, to, I wanted to reach out to non-Jewish people to have them experience this game and to have a Jewish experience and do that in a way that's approachable. So I, I definitely had that in mind. Probably not so much from the aspect of somebody just like who doesn't know anything about Judaism mm-hmm. and is like, oh, this is a Jewish game. Let me pick it up. I'm sure maybe that person's out there. I, I don't know. I didn't have them in mind, though. But they certainly I think there's enough tools in there to have them guide the experience. But I think the important thing is that person comes in with with the thought of kindness, like they're mm-hmm. coming in because they want to learn and they want to have some growth in that area and being able to start having that experience that might trigger further questions or further research for, for themselves. So th- this game is definitely, and I actually put this on the first page, like no xenophobia, no racist bullshit. Mm-hmm. If you do that, I will happily refund your, your game or donate it to my charity of choice. Like mm-hmm. if somebody comes in and is not wanting to authentically engage with it, then mm-hmm. fuck them. Like, and that kind of gets to your point earlier, Jeremy, about like the, the cancel culture a little bit. And I think there's definitely a middle, middle path to that of it's important to call out the stuff, but mm-hmm. it's also incumbent on marginalized people. If you want better experiences, you do have to be vocal about them. So mm-hmm. there there's opportunities for both. And mm-hmm. I think, I'm leaning more towards the being vocal, but being open. And that's how Mm -hmm. I'm choosing to approach it. I think all the Mm -hmm. approaches are valid. I think we don't want to come back on a marginalized person and say, Oh, you were bad because you called out that person. Approaching that person with kindness too, and be like, you're, I I understand you're you're under a lot of stress. You're whatever your situation is. And Mm -hmm. I respect that you chose to act out in that way because Mm -hmm. you're, you're feeling what you're feeling and I I'm choosing to take a different path. That's yeah. just, that, that's how I kind of think about it. Cause cancel canceling people has its place. Cause you do need to call it out, but 
Yeah, they're, absolutely. If they're dangerous, it's that. like, yeah, absolutely. If it's if they're da- if they're being dangerous, if they're being degenerative, like, yeah. they're they obviously did not come to this party to have a conversation, right? Yeah. They didn't. They didn't. They came here guns ablazing, uh, <laughs> probably. Very poor phrasing. They, they, they uh, come to steal the Sufganiyot. In the game, their Sufganiyot are Jewish donuts that are typically mm-hmm. served during Hanukkah. So if, if mm-hmm. that person just came to steal the donuts from my game, no way. Get out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not for you. No jelly for you. It's a beautiful game. It. I think you, in my opinion, in my reading of, of the piece, I really think that you... I felt like I was... You know, we always talk about how are you playing the game when you're reading? Are you playing the game mm-hmm. when you're playing? Are you yeah. playing the game when you're learning? Right? Like that sort of stuff. And I could feel my, like, I don't know, maybe this, I say it with, a, I've said it in a couple of episodes, but maybe I'm just the person who like naturally starts to play as I read. Mm-hmm. But I really felt like I was absorbing a bit of the experience going through the book. And I would love to see, I mean, could we get like a, a Hanukkah tradition of just playing Hanukkah goblins for all eight <laughs> nights? Like that'd be sick. And well, there uh, may be a second edition coming December, 2021. We'll see. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Everyone you first, got first news. First news. <laughs> first speaking of beautiful. I, I love Hanukkah goblins. I love everything that you put into it. I love the direction that it's gone. I'm excited now for a second edition to come out. Um, no and- promises, but like there, there's definitely an opportunity there. If I can yes. ha- devote some time, <laughs> why can't we promise? Why can't we let the people be hungry for more Hanukkah? Goblins? Okay. If we can get to a thousand subs for, Whatever, Jerry, was it Kobe? Or what? Yeah. <laughs> Let's get to 10,000 downloads on draw, draw Your Dice, and then there will be a second edition of Hanukkah Goblins. Let's Hey, let's as of this recording, goal. we're at 3.3, everybody. Let's <laughs> let's get that 7K happening. Oh, maybe that. we can uh, set that goal higher then. Maybe yeah. 15K. <laughs> 15K, like, thank you. I love that. But really, it, it should be on. Before I move on from this, you also itch funded Hanukkah Goblins, yes, correct? I did. Would you, you know, it's a really hot topic in the indie scene. And, pro, and by the time this episode actually comes out, I'm sure it's going to be a really hot topic leading into the summer as well. Would you, you were sort of the first I was aware of, like when I joined the Brain Trust back in mm-hmm. September of uh, 2019. 2019? No, 2020. 2020. 2020. What was that experience like? You were some of the first people to like really engage with. Itch funding. How how was that? Yeah, it was interesting because for me, it was the first real game I put out, which was really scary. So I put out one kind of like ash can kind of game out my itch page, and then Hanukkah Goblins was my second game of like mm-hmm. the first second thing I published and first like real game that I could call a game. And like I did a lot of like thinking before that before I really decided to start designing games and how I wanted to do it and I saw itch funding as a real opportunity we didn't even have the term itch funding <laughs> right right when, yeah, when yeah, we yeah. did it which man that makes me feel like an old fogey or something like, <laughs> 20 years uh, ago when yeah. I started alternative crowdfunding <laughs> it was funding through itch was a conversation we were having through brain trust and uh, I, I just thought it was a really good opportunity to take the positive marketing aspects of a Kickstarter, which you have this campaign, you have it for X number of days, and that's kind of your marketing engine of like, you have events, you have releases, and it's a way to get attention on your game. Because as a 
brand spanking new designer at that point. Nobody knew who I was in a, in a larger sense. I think some people in the brain trust knew who I was. Vidicia Valetti was like one of the first people that kind of like reached out to me on Twitter. Cause like I put a, a goblin picture up from the artist for the game and Vidicia was like, Oh my God, it's a, it's a Jewish goblin. <laughs> and goblins bringing people together. That's where that, that online friendship blossomed from. So I think, that's was when I was thinking about how do I want to fund this game? I thought that was a cool opportunity. And I, I even did something different with the itch funding too, that I haven't seen, mm-hmm. which was I actually pretty much dos- donated all the proceeds from the game to a nonprofit that I really uh, admire, which is people's breakfast, Oakland, which mm-hmm. are, it's a nonprofit based here in Oakland serving the houseless community here. And to me that, that was an opportunity for me. Of I, I have a full-time job. I have enough money to live off of from that. But on the flip side with tabletop games, I don't want to just put out a game for zero dollars because it's work, right? Mm-hmm. So this was a, a, a compromised approach of like, I can cover the costs. I can not undercut any markets or like feel like I'm not supporting people who need to be charging X number of dollars for a game. Because I actually mm-hmm. feel very passionate about that as well as we underprice our games for sure, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. on for small designers where there isn't a large market. So I decided to do an itch funding campaign for all eight days of Hanukkah. And I did it for, I launched the game on the, I think the first day of Hanukkah, or it might've been the night mm-hmm. before Hanukkah. And then I had something mm-hmm. special each day. And that was kind of my, my marketing engine for it. And I mean, it worked really well. We made, uh, we made our goal the uppermost goal by the end of the campaign by like three dollars. So we we Yay. hit fifteen hundred and three dollars, and then through that I donated I think three hundred sixty three hundred seventy of that to People's Breakfast Oakland, which was to me that was like the best thing I could do for Hanukkah. Right? It's like mm-hmm. I get to put out a game I'm passionate about. I get to make a sizable donation to uh, a nonprofit that. Uh, is important to me and important to my community here in Oakland. And yeah, and then using using itch as the the marketplace for that. And I think I think it's a great idea. I think it's a great way to get eyes on things that otherwise itch people might just pass by it. Unfortunately, that like that's one problem with itch is it's hard to know what's a real game or like what's a high value game and what's an ash can because it all kind of gets put on the same portfolio and the same everything. So mm-hmm. that was one way to show like almost like certifying the game a little bit. Like I, this is something I'm very serious about. This is something that I'm, I'm passionate about and it, I think it worked out well. Yeah, where are we going? I I need soundboards, but yes, welcome to Trends, Max. I'm sure as you know on the show, this is the part of the show where I ask you sort of the current events of the TTRPG scene as seen through your perspective lens, right? So are there any trends that you're seeing in your social circles, your commentaries, your communities, or even ones within yourself that you feel are really cool, that you want people to run with, something you want to speak into the ether, or is there maybe something that's being slightly degenerative of the scene that you want to sort of caution people against? Because I think both of those things are, you know, I don't... 
as much as I shit on D and don't really want to shit on anyone else. Right, uh, right. So I'm not, when I, when I ask that question, it is mainly to be like, you know, there's just this really weird thing about people saying like, you have to have really good graphic design for your games. And that's mm-hmm. not true. Right. Let's right, say that's right. an example. But regardless of all of that, what are, what are you seeing? What do you like? What don't you like? Let's, let's get, let's see your taste. Yeah. I mean, Jeremy, this part of the show is like the in-style magazine for tabletop games. Like, we are we are moving the market. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I Top think... ten ways. To... <laughs> I mean, you are part of the games media. I think, was it Tyler brought that up in, in the most recent episode? Or in most recent Possible Worlds episode of like, you are part of the games media. I slightly remember that, and I yeah. never have ever, and probably still will never think of myself as like <laughs> a games journalist, but I'm happy that people are listening and getting ideas. Absolutely. So, Trend, I'm really excited for, this might be a two-parter, but like the first one is definitely digital tools, and mm-hmm. dovetailed with that accessibility. That's something mm-hmm. I think the tabletop scene has really embraced at a first step is I think uh, everyone has accessibility and affordability in mind with going with games. But I'll I'll start with the first one I mentioned, which is the digital tools. I think Mm -hmm. digital interfacing with games is really exciting. I think the pandemic has shown us that there's a desire for people to do gaming online. And I mean, we've seen it with like MMORPGs and Steam and was it Epic Games, whatever that marketplace Mm -hmm. is. On the future, the, the future of digital is here. Mm-hmm. We have all the tools we need to start making games and having tabletop experiences through digital means. And mm-hmm. I'm really excited by the potential of that. I think one really cool one we've just seen is the zone by Raf Damico, which is also based here in the Bay Area. Of like mm-hmm. that game looks so cool. Of everything they've done, like creating this this website and all of the digital aspects of that which is very cool and having that as a role-playing experience i think that's just one example of how embracing the internet embracing embracing all the digital tools we have into the tabletop space i think that's one area of innovation that might help us break into other markets to break into mm-hmm. not necessarily the D and D market, but maybe more into the board game market of mm-hmm. if we can create these kind of digital tabletops or even bringing in new tabletop elements to our physical games as well. I think that's mm-hmm. one area of innovation would be like, this is something that's really cool. It might bring in new people because mm-hmm. we only have, we can only go up from here in the number of people playing indie tabletop role-playing games. I, you know, I agree. agree. (laughs) Anyone who's been listening to this show straight up to this point knows that I am here for the future. I'm here for the robot overlords, bring them. But no, I totally agree. The, the, future is now right like technology is here it's just it's taken a while for the tabletop space to really adapt to it because a lot of the focus has been on D, right so the right. biggest thing i think of is D beyond the only thing it lacks is a virtual tabletop and i know that they're the powers that be they're <laughs> trying to figure out how to suction all those dollars away from roll 20 so that they can have people in their own ecosystem right, right. and how many generic 
D&D 5E, 4E, 3E character sheets can you find in the App Store right mm-hmm. now? Like, if you oh type God. in character sheet, you'll find, like, 15 off the rip that are, like, all do the same thing, but they exist. And they're useful. Like, there, I know that there are people who don't love carrying a bunch of papers around, got to get a backpack together. If all my stuff is just on my mobile device. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Cool. Like, that's how I interact with the game and all that information is there. And D&D is just one of those games where it helps to have something else doing all the calculations Mm. for you rather than yourself, right? Uh, release of cognitive load, I think, is a really great thing. I'm sure that leads into the accessibility bits. But recently, I started looking into learning like Swift or React, so that I can mm-hmm. build like my practice in the future. I hope will be to talk to people about their games and make their character sheets for them. Right, like make a character sheet in on the iOS for Blades in the Dark. Make it for if Hanukkah Goblins had like a more elaborate, not even more elaborate. I think if it's if it was a PDF like app that people could buy, they that could sort of build their character inside of, like build their goblin inside of, that's mm-hmm. also an option, right? And that's just sort of like it's it's part of my minimalism like mindset as well of like you know, just grab your phone and that's the only thing you need. So like mm-hmm. if you can operate on that screen space, I also think about like interconnectivity, right? Of like, there's a game called weave where it has its own sort of tarot deck, its own custom tarot deck. And it uses a QR code scanner to like read the card and it builds characters that way. And then it also has like a, uh, a, a unified space in which the GM can like, send messages or add items and stuff to different Mm. characters. So it's sort Mm -hmm. of like real time additions of stuff. And I just think things like that. And if that was like a principle of a game's design, just how cool 
how how very cool could that stuff be? How like executing the murder mystery, right? With a bunch of like Bluetooth headsets and Apple watches. There's mm-hmm. like everyone's walking around and then like every half hour the GM or host is like here is the next clue, right? Like that sort of stuff could be really, really, really cool. I want really that. immersive. <laughs> like that sounds so cool. Play a murder mystery with like an Apple watch and like you could send like little prompts and stuff too, or like mm-hmm. add mm-hmm. events that come up through and it like might only be for some people. Like yep. that's the so cool thing about the, the digital world is like, there is, you could do anything, um, mm-hmm. or you couldn't mm-hmm. do anything, but like there's, there's so <laughs> oh, many, <laughs> you, can do, you can do so many things that would, it, it's, it sparks a new creativity. It's just, it's a different tool set to use. And mm-hmm. obviously there's things you can do in physical form that you can't do in digital, but Correct. we, we've, yeah. we've iterated a lot of things. Like mm-hmm. what, one example to throw out there is Spearwitch just put out and Jared Sinclair of Spearwitch, I should say put out it was a clay creatures and mm-hmm. it's a tabletop role-playing game with like modeling clay and you get to like create your own little clay creature with your game and like that's something you wouldn't have the same physicality with with a digital game mm-hmm. but so mm-hmm. it digital games aren't the, the panacea of like tabletop games but it's yes it's an exciting new way to interact that will reach out to new people because I think since this show is kind of about the business of game design as well, we need to keep thinking about how can indie designers survive off of the kind of scraps <laughs> that are left mm-hmm. besides D&D. That D&D is a huge market share relative to the indie space. But then mm-hmm. you look at board games and probably board games dwarf what Hasbro would make on mm-hmm. D&D. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at the entire board game market across all companies... So we, we're looking at a very slim part of the market we currently have of the people buying. And you see really successful campaigns on Kickstarter of 10,000 or 100,000 or I think even Wonder Home was like, what, 400,000 or something. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So that there's already money in our market. And there's so many more people that if we could reach out to them and create a bridge to them to play, to come into tabletop games, I think that that float, that would float all of our boats. I think like even seeing like companies like Magpie acquiring properties like Avatar, the last airbender, I think that it's a separate market from like indie games, but it helps the indie market in some ways as well. It it gives Mm. some legitimacy to games outside of Wizards of the Coast. Because yeah. people see D&D, and they're like, this is the only role-playing game. Like, speaking of people who do not know anything about our our area of design, mm-hmm. and then they mm-hmm. see, like, an indie game on itch, they're like, oh, it's probably not any good because it doesn't look, like, doesn't look fancy. I haven't heard anyone talk about it. And I think mm-hmm. that's something we really need to tackle and really mm-hmm. need to thinking about is how do we create that legitimacy to the outside consumer who can just come in and be like, yes, like I want to like come play Hanukkah goblins or yes, I want to come play the, the chair or I want to come mm-hmm. and play in grandpa's farm. Like I'm super stoked about grandpa's farm. I'm just going to put that out. <laughs> that is second, second possible, second possible world shout out. But there, there's so much cool stuff going on in here that more people need to know about because mm-hmm. we need to support these designers and, specifically our marginalized designers. I think as an indie space, we recognize the inequities. We 
we recognize the lack of diversity and we have an opportunity to actually start addressing that. We can put out our, our BIMPOC designers, put them on pedestals, make, hey, all you outside people, come and give them money and play their cool games. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And <laughs> roping back to the original point, digital tools is a is one opportunity to reach outside of our, our current people who play games. And, you know, it is, it's certainly untapped. I think that the age of technology is slowly like falling upon the indie space. You know, we've seen it with games like this discord has ghosts in it. We've seen it with nightmare kitchen. We've seen it with tools like the zone, right? Like we mentioned earlier, just a lot of games that are starting to take digital as a principal design and putting role play techniques or influences into that space that doesn't feel that isn't a video game, right? Like a Mm -hmm. video game is a very different, like sort of immersive experience than like a role playing game is. And I, and I definitely think there's a a differentiation between that and the, the latter has not really like used technology quite yet. I think this is the, these last three, four years, like I think D and D beyond is sort of the, first concept like we've had roll 20 for a while mm-hmm. and we've had stuff like actual tabletop and i know role application is doing a lot of stuff but D beyond is the first to kind of like make an ecosystem make their brand like full encapsulation and then really tailor that's what it is it's about tailoring the experience of your game using the digital platform not yeah. just letting someone else sort of hack away at some rough javascript javascript <laughs> bits and then say hey just just pile on here right like doing mm-hmm. something with intention and then reducing as much friction as possible and totally. boy let me tell you roll 20 has a ton of friction oh. please someone figure it out but additionally as your second point digital tools are also potentially really good for accessibility means right we are not tapping into like we talk about bringing people outside of indie in but there are also pockets of people inside of indie who can't enjoy every game because it doesn't meet their accessibility needs right Right. so yeah what were you going to say about accessibility as well yeah i think it, it dovetails with the digital tools digital tools are one way we can start addressing some inequities with accessibility that mm-hmm. there's been so many people who have just been kind of locked out of, of just games in general. And I think us as a indie tabletop industry, I think a lot of us do have that base level of understanding of accessibility is important. I, I see that a lot, but the perspective I'm coming from is we need as for people who are not disabled designing games, we need to think and be thinking about radical inclusion just in general, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. We, we've gotten to step, step one of awareness now. We need to keep pushing, uh, mm-hmm. keep pushing people to think about how people interact with their games in general, like that be content warnings, that might be mm-hmm. the actual format of a game you're publishing. Like if you have, a, you have your physical version, that's great. Okay, now people who are who cannot see well or cannot see at all can't experience your game. Well, now we have PDFs and TXT files. I think that's mm-hmm. that's kind of where we're at now is like people realize, "Oh, I should have a TXT file." But I we we got to even keep pushing further like mm-hmm. an EPUB mm-hmm. file, which is like for an e-reader which will do all the formatting for you of like having the headings and everything. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. That's another thing we should be doing as designers. And one thing I did with Hanukkah Goblins was a new 
format, which is called Daisy, which it's not a new oh, platform, but it's that. new to um, tabletop. I hadn't seen anyone do it, but the Daisy format, and I specifically did the Daisy three, which is essentially creating an audiobook from your game. So people can listen to it as just another way someone could experience the game. So it will play it through whatever device that they need. And it also, I believe, works on Braille machines as well. That like the DAISY format will go to Braille as well. I'm not 100% sure on that, but I do remember reading something about that. Mm -hmm. So that, that was one step I took of starting to push more on thinking about how can we be even how can we increase the inclusion? That's something we need to keep pushing on that we, we don't just stop at content warnings. We don't stop at just doing a TXT file. We need to be thinking about continuously pushing for inclusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's, there's definitely a sense of, again, it's all about reducing friction of access, mm-hmm. right? It's about like having just a TXT file is not reducing friction. It's sort of the same thing as your PDF or even as your print book, right? Just it allows uh, a reader to sort of like gobble it up a little bit easier, but it's right. not the version that is tailored to the experience that we're talking about here. Right. And I know that Jeff Stormer is doing like audiobook director's commentary stuff for anyone can wear the mask. I definitely think that you should reach out to him about the Daisy file. Cause you would probably find that very, 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 very interesting if he's not already doing it as, as a off mic aside, but, but yes, there, it's not even just like, it's also things like color correction in PDFs, right? Like yeah. we talk about colorblindness type things. Like what, what if you had a program that allowed for someone to buy your PDF version? They can read PDFs fine, but a lot of the colors mess with their colorblindness and they can't get the richness of what you're trying to present to them, right? Mm-hmm. I have a friend of mine who uh, is b- blue... Mm, I can only remember blue, but it's definitely two colors, maybe blue green, but uh, a lot of some of the books that I have that I've tried to show him, he just sort of, it it becomes a little bit washed out because Mm -hmm. of, of those effects. Right. And so what if there was just a filter that you could have on a file or in a program? that's like, okay, swap everything to this, right? I mean, we already do it in video games. Why can't we have that same application to our reading documents, right? I'm sure that technology exists out there already. It's just figuring out how to, I think the other thing additionally, and this may touch slightly back to digital tools, but it's also about finding digital tools that are easier to learn, right? Mm -hmm. I think that it takes a while to build up your skills for like Adobe Illustrator and stuff, but I know that there are programs out there. I think that Will Yopes is really keen on EPUB reader formatting and Mm -hmm. has some links to like easy learning for that stuff. But part of the friction is also like, we also need to, as the people who are developing these technologies, we also need to come out with technologies that reduce the friction of use as well, like enhance the user experience, enhance user interface, create these systems. So it's accessibility all around. The the main point I'm trying to say is that it's accessibility all around, not only for the, us, but also for the digital tools. But we that still doesn't mean that we have to, or that we shouldn't start to really go beyond, like go above and beyond, not even above and beyond, right? We're doing like the bare minimum at this point, mm-hmm. as far as like right. access, uh, on a, on a, on a wide scale, on a lateral scale. But, and I know there are people that are over you and Will and many others who are going above and beyond the current st- standard as it's set to attempt to bring accessibility to our 
industry. So yeah, yeah definitely, definitely ingredients that there needs to be needs to put. And every time, here's the thing, partially it's tough for me because every time I have conversations like this, I haven't made a game yet, but now I'm like, okay, now I have to write on my list. Like I need an EPUB version. I need an audio, mm-hmm. like I, and not that like I need, I don't want to say like I need in the sense that I won't be successful. I say I need because I'm meeting all these people on these shows and we talk about this and it doesn't matter if I have zero games and that's preventing me from getting my first game out there. I want to do that because I want to show that I care as mm-hmm. a designer, as a, as a, not even as a designer, but even as like a human being oh. to like, I want everyone to be able to come to this game, whatever that game yeah. happens to be, but be able to come to it from really any walk of life. Should I have the ability to do so? Oh. And I want to have the ability to do so. So uh, totally. really great trend. Really great trend. And I think for any designer who, if you kind of listen to the, maybe the fast five minutes of our conversation, your eyes kind of glazed over about like that might seem like a lot or like, like, yeah. Oh, I, I can't do the color stuff or like, it seems like a lot. I, mm-hmm. I want you to take that opportunity and think that's your privilege talking of, yeah, because you don't have to deal with it. It doesn't mean you get to ignore it. So I, I would, caution you if, if you kind of zoned out in that part think about how you can make your game more accessible and look at what people are doing and mm-hmm. if you don't know hire a disability consultant depending yep. on your project i think even if you if it's a hundred dollar budget project it would be a good investment for you to pay someone 50 bucks for an hour consultation just on what can you be doing what are the free resources out there i'll put out mm-hmm. that all of the tools I use to make the accessible versions, I didn't. I paid zero dollars for. I didn't have to pay anything for them. So this idea that you need to pay for a special software to get to this kind of basic level of accessibility is not true. That there yeah, are free yeah, yeah. tools out there. So if you if you don't know what's out there, there are a lot of disability consultants on Twitter that I'm sure you could reach out to. And I think that's that's something you need to think of that we all need to think about. We all need to be keep having a mindset of we're pushing forward. We're not trying mm-hmm. to get to some level. We're just trying to keep pushing forward and pushing for more inclusion, pushing for more mm-hmm. equity, diversity on all that. And we don't stop um, mm-hmm. until we let, we hit that inclusion. So that's, that's my comment on there. We should all be thinking about these things and doing encourage people who don't know what they're doing look on Twitter, hire someone if you need to um, and hire them for your bigger projects that if you're working on a $10,000 Kickstarter, you should have a disability consultant that you're paying to understand what your, what project you're putting out and what are the impacts going to be of Mm -hmm. how can people access this game? What tools they might need to equitably or equitably play this game the same as others. And sort of to walk myself back as well. It's uh, you can do, you, you can like start ticking off the list, right? You don't have to make a game and then release all versions of accessible play, especially if you're working on a budget. Do one at a time, right? Do your text format, then work on a colorblind one or, or you know, do the audiobook. Like there are a lot of you don't have to do it all at once, even though I sort of like made it seem that way. Mm-hmm. You can definitely like start because they're gonna ultimately require different layouts. They're gonna have to require different file types and executions. So there is gonna be some redesign in your work that that you're definitely gonna have to do 
do when it comes to producing these other, because again, it's about refining the process and also about create a reducing the friction of access to your game. And that's going to come in steps. It's not going to come in whole, whole package off the rip. And there are easy things you can do just mm-hmm. alongside your current processes, like putting out an EPUB file. If you write your game with Google docs, like have your basic text in there before you bring it into layout, you can export from Google docs to an EPUB file mm-hmm, mm-hmm, already mm-hmm. directly in that Google docs is free. So that mm-hmm. there are things from your get go that you can do. I might push back a little bit and say, you should be thinking about these things throughout. And if you yeah. put something out and then come later with the accessible versions, that's, that's not optimal. Sure. I, sure. Yeah, yes. But that's, there is some inequity to that of now you're saying you're, you're preferencing one over the other, which I understand that's where mm. we're at, but thinking about how can we keep pushing forward, pushing for more inclusion? And that's the mindset we should always be coming from and listening to the people who need it. No, absolutely. Thank you. I, t- I, I mean, I'm in 100% agreeance. I just yeah, didn't want someone to be like, well, I can't do all that. So I shouldn't make this game. Like, no, you <laughs> no, can't yeah. do all of that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. I, I love it. I'm here for it and I want it. I want it in every way. And I've wanted it pretty much since like maybe episode four, probably episode mm-hmm. four of the show ever since I'm here. That's neither here nor there. Just now I'm reminiscing. That will lead us into, I think that's a good segue to lead us into talking about sort of future project. Also, Tip, do you want to talk about your like current and work thing or do you still want to sort of not talk about that yet? Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about that project and I'll, I'll do it kind of briefly. I'll, I'll mention the... At the beginning, that I want to focus more on games that are fostering a connection with your surrounding ecosystem. So, mm-hmm. growing up in California, and I, I still live and work here now too, as well. That the environment has always been a big part of my life. Just interacting with your surrounding ecosystems, whether that be the ecosystem at your house that you have plants in your yard, or you have cool like big oak trees or something in your yard. This, the idea of the outdoors is. Like, quote-unquote, the outdoors is not, it's fabricated. There is no Mm -hmm. wilderness, quote-unquote wilderness. Like, if you go out to the the national forest or anything, that's not wilderness. This is just a different ecosystem. Mm -hmm. This is all part of our same world. That you don't, there's no, like, human world and natural world. We're all part of the same world. We're all part of some macro ecosystem together, and we're interacting in different ways. And that those are kind of the, the, the game ideas I want to work with is having games that start fostering that connection a little bit. And one, one particular one I want to work on is a backpacking game of like a game that you can bring with you on while you're backpacking. And it would be like printed on a, what's, what's it called? Cotton thing you tie around your neck, like a little handkerchief. handkerchief. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah. And it would be like printed on that, like, forgetting the game from adam bass now i think adam has now done two games printed on like cotton play mats that Mm, are like mm -hmm, handkerchief mm -hmm. but i'd love the idea of like you have a game printed on a handkerchief you can like use it throughout your day and like have it around your neck and then roll it out at night and play it and you can help like foster the, the environment around you use the rocks you saw in your your walk as like a character in your game potentially or thinking 
thinking about ways to get people more aware of their environment that they're around. Because in California right now, we are again going through drought. We are again experiencing little to no rainfall this year that where I live, this was where I live in the Bay area. This was the second driest year on record. And the other part of the, in the North Bay in the Marin area, North of San Francisco had the driest year on record. And as we are barreling into climate change and the new, our new future, it's, I think it's really important that people understand where they live, understand where their water comes from, understand where their food comes from, and mm-hmm. it kind of gets to the, the hope punk and solar punk areas as well, that that's kind of the beginning stages for thinking about those things is just understanding where you're at. So I'm really excited about thinking about games in that area of mm-hmm. getting people more connected with their environments. Of It could be people who are already really into out, in outdoor adventuring, or it could just be people who have always been curious, mm-hmm. kind of a very similar thought area as Hanukkah goblins, but now like applied to like the outdoors. Cause it's mm-hmm. really important as we go forward in California. Like I see green lawns everywhere. And in my head, I'm like, do you realize you live in basically a desert? <laughs> like yeah, yeah. in the number of like, in terms of rainfall, like for California is a dry place compared to mm-hmm. a lot of areas. So it, that's something I'm really excited at just future design. So be on the lookout for that. I don't know how those games are going to come about. They're definitely going to be very different mechanics. There probably will not be dice. I'm someone, I don't love dice. I mm-hmm. Dice are a suggestion to me of how to guide the story, which that's cool, but you probably won't see dice tables in my games. <laughs> I'm here for it. I'm here for all the versions. There was this I had a, got a subscription to Curiosity Stream, which hey, mm-hmm. if anyone from Curiosity Stream is listening, sponsor sponsor my ass. But I would totally wear the leggings that have Curiosity Stream <laughs> on the butt. But sell my soul. Sorry, bit over. Basically, I was watching this show called. It's called some uh, world of the future is mm-hmm. the like the full show name, but every episode is like this thing of the future. It's talking about homes of the future, and it was looking at it from a very like minimalism slash solar punk sort of aesthetic. And there is this one segment where it is a guy in New Mexico who took it upon himself to pretty much start his like own self-sustaining like village, essentially found Mm -hmm. like some desert out there, took a lot of like unused materials, like built walls or insulations out of tires or brought solar panels. But essentially, it's this longhouse concept that the, the, the longest side of the house has all the solar panels, catches the sun, they're very specifically placed. And on the inside, it's a full like self-sustained irrigation system where they grow plants uh, and vegetables and things. It self-heats. The really only like real maintain they have to do is checking like the water equipment and brushing off the solar panels in the winter. But the reason I bring this up is that in the concept of thinking about the future and how do we meld with it? You know, there are a lot of one of the big 
thing, in my opinion, one of the big things we need to tackle is like housing, how we're executing mm-hmm. housing for the human populace, right? We're really like building out in such a way that it's taking up a lot of the natural resources of our space. And people want to think about vertical spaces or redesign spaces. A lot of like I'm living in a house from I think from like the early 1900s or so. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's designed for the 1900s it's not designed for like the concept of how much space do i actually need right to exist in right because one of the there's another segment in there where the guy was talking about like when you have an office and you are in it it is the office the second you leave the office in your home it is no longer an office because it's not being used it is now a storage space so his concept is like it has this big like center mechanical moving block or robotic moving block that like houses all of your stuff and the block moves and shifts to create different rooms within the same room so like if you wanted the bedroom it might slide out the bed from the compartment the rest of the cube might slide to the back of the wall and now your room is its bedroom when you're done with your bedroom the bed goes away the block comes back center you're sort of meandering around the space it's office time the desk folds out you're sitting at it you're working at it you're done with that you put away you have entertainment the process is sort of just like the room transforms essentially you don't need 10 different rooms to execute on different specific functions the idea is that you only need one room that supplies a ton of functions Mm -hmm. and that can really change the landscape on what it means to have housing in i'm speaking mainly to america i know that there are attempts of this sort of stuff in like japan and china because their population densities are so much more different than ours but yeah it's just very cool concepts all around so i'm totally vibing with like because the only reason like cyberpunk things happened, at least to my understanding and my research, mm-hmm. because I also researched about solar punk and cyberpunk is a, der- uh, a derivative. Cyberpunk only came about because it was like authors in the 80s and 70s who were like seeing the the future scape of corporation and business <laughs> and technology. And they were like, this all sounds like fantastical stuff to us. Let's write it. But if you write enough of that cyberpunk and the populace absorbs it, is it fantasy anymore? If they're like, that's a really cool idea. Why can't yeah. we have robots? Why can't we have AI? Why can't we have like really tall skyscrapers? Right. That's sort of, what I know it's the 80s and 70s <laughs> and there were definitely skyscrapers. But like my point is that like our media our ideas that we produce in our pieces of, of creation, games, film, TV, music, they all inspire in some way. Mm -hmm. And if we make games that talk about having a conversation with nature about our ecosystems, it could inspire someone to take more action than they normally would have if they if it wasn't in a media that they were aware of, right? Totally. So I am super here for putting more like statements in games, I guess is what I'm saying. Because I think people really underestimate how important media is, like mm-hmm. in in regard to just kind of society in, in general. It's mm-hmm. like think about like what inspired you to do the thing you're doing. Like like one thing I always think back is like Bill Nye the Science Guy. Like mm-hmm. watching how like Bill Nye made sci- science so cool, and like on a similar vein, like Alan Alda with the science interviews of like mm-hmm. really like having his personable interviews about science and getting people interested, like how many people that inspired people to do scientific careers and like Mm -hmm. bring that into their everyday lives. And maybe if you weren't even, you didn't do the sciences, 
you're inspired by that. It's it's so important. I think games are a, an interesting way to do that that hasn't been done before. Like mm-hmm. c- certain people have definitely done it and tried. Like like one that comes to mind is like Oregon Trail video game. Uh, mm-hmm. Like the video game space has, has done that a lot of like educational video games even, mm-hmm. but tabletop role playing games were I think we're just starting. Like specifically in the indie space, like you look around itch, there's a lot of really cool inspired things whether they be like small things or even like supplements or anything, there's a lot of these ideas starting to kind of proliferate around there. And it's so cool. Like we, we need to be thinking about those things and I think like the, the solar punk stuff is really cool. And for me, like my background is in water. Like that's my professional careers working in water resources in California. And that's something I want to bring to the table of for most people, they don't realize their water is imported like in California, most people like who live in urban centers, their water is being brought in from hundreds of miles away or even a mm. hundred miles away. Even in the case of the, the Bay area, we're talking about anywhere from 80 to 150 miles or so. The water wow. is piped in from the Sierra Nevadas from these amazing engineer, amazing in the idea, the idea of like awe, like oh my god, these were huge projects back in the yeah. late 1800s, 1900s. They built these giant concrete pathways to bring water hundreds of miles by gravity to support the population growth in the Bay Area, and those were viewed as like revolutionary things to grow the mm-hmm. populations here. But now that we're here in the 21st century, we need to rethink those systems of mm-hmm. like we have seen the signs around the world of how we're currently living is not sustainable and how do we rethink all of the assumptions we've been having and media and games is it's a way to do that. Like I, if I could inspire somebody to like conserve water with my game, like that's so cool. <laughs> like, a win an absolute like, win. It's a right? win. And like even just getting someone to think about it, like, like a, a silly one is like your toilet leaking. Like the back of your toilet might have a, a faulty valve or like the flapper might be loose. And it's just literally putting potable water directly into the sewer and thinking about how much energy it took to get that little molecule of water to your house. And for the example in the East Bay, that water probably came from the Sierra Nevadas. It came 90 miles down a pipeline to the Bay area. It went through a treatment plant. It went through a pipeline. It went through a pumping plant and then into your house through the copper pipes. That water went a long freaking way to just go right down to the sewer. That's just one example. Like food is another one. I'm so excited what people are doing. And what people could do. And I think this also ties in. This conversation has tiny things that also talk about like the intent behind Hanukkah goblins and subverting stereotypes, right? Is that... If there's only, I I was hearing this from Asians Represents, I I started listening to their podcast a couple weeks ago, and they were talking about how the reason, you know, we always get the person like, oh, it's just a game, it's just a movie, it's just Mm -hmm. television, like it doesn't matter that it's doing like this this bad thing for your culture because it shouldn't be taken seriously. And like, yeah, sure, you can come at it with that angle, but you need to realize that sometimes that's the only truth people are absorbing of, mm-hmm. of cultures. And I think I sort of said this in the beginning of the, yeah. of the show, but it's like just to double down on it is like, if that is their only cultural touch point is this, I don't know, like that terrible 
Will Smith movie with the orc police, like like mm-hmm. that whole like stereotype trapping of and and J.R. Tolkien and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like, sure they're orcs, but they are still humanoids, and they are taking on accessories, characteristics of not white individuals. Like they don't, they don't carry the same they have a silhouette about them that speaks towards the culture they are adapting because that is the influence in which they are inspired from and so it's important to recognize that just as much as we want to create pieces that inspire change in the world for the positive the other thing that we also mention or at least that i mentioned here is that we need to start looking and demanding more of medias that are creating negative ideas under mm-hmm. the guise of like no these things aren't connected yeah. mm, well oh they mm, are interesting <laughs> yeah i think that i think it's uh, important to state that as well but i love that 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 is your like going forward design principle to share that love of taking our ecosystem back essentially totally I love Asians represent Hanukkah goblins was actually inspired by Asians represent. Uh, I dedicated the book to, to Daniel Kwan, Agatha and Amar and and also Steve and also just Asians represent community. Like that was one, another kind of touchstone of like how I got into design because they're so amazing at what they do. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. Specifically talking about, issues of D in our community the the baggage it brings with it and for people who don't believe the connection between media and our society i encourage you to look up a term called the cycle of oppression or cycle of socialization which mm-hmm. is the idea that you have three prongs of this kind of like flowing diagram at one the top end you have your current culture of like our current stereotypes our current positives like current understandings And those understandings feed into the second area of the chart, which is our institutions. So that would be our media. It would be our government, our laws, basically everything that is putting out signals of like what, like what to do. And Mm -hmm. like includes the laws as well. And the third angle is the reactions to that of like, how is that being enforced and put back into society? And Mm -hmm. I mean, that comes through media is, we see something, we see something in the media, like some something that was really influential that feeds back into our society somehow. Maybe yeah. you don't consciously recognize it or it, maybe it's someone else in our society that really truly believes it and it creates a feedback loop. And that's both a positive and negative. Like it could be something positive that flows back, like the games we've been talking about and positive media that helps encourage change back to the current culture but more often than not in human history is it's been a negative feedback of it's Mm. been negative stereotypes that have reinforced this cycle of oppression of people seeing these signals doing some reaction, whether that be violence, acceptance, whatever reaction is. And then that gets fed back into the main culture. So if you don't believe that connection, there's a lot of research on cycle of socialization and cycle of oppression. Uh, definitely amazing thank you for providing that resource for people to check out
folks, it is time for the TLDR tip. <gasps> and I think I think this is going to be a, a co-conversation here. Because usually I've been, you know, as you've been mm-hmm. listening to the show, I've been rolling. But I've been weaning off rolling because my dice are cursed <laughs> to always land on a four. Yeah, and everyone has a lot to of marketing. marketing or publishing. Yeah, a lot of marketing, a lot of publishing. So I've kicked it to Not the bad. curb. <laughs> you know, I would like some different types of advice here. Sure, but yeah, yeah. I think in tandem, I want to talk about... We mentioned this a little bit earlier. It kind of it piqued my interest. We talk about the cost of your game, right? Like how to determine uh, for you what the cost of your game is, right? And mm-hmm. not doing this race to the bottom thing or feeding into the really lame idea that like, oh, indie indie players don't have a lot of money to spend on games mm-hmm. or they don't want to or whatever that trappings is. Like that's not true by any stretch of the imagination we're not really trading around the same ten dollars every day it is definitely a a falsehood so i guess tip for i guess we'll have a conversation first for you i have some i have some personal ideas about other like resources that i think about in entrepreneurism and things like that but for you how how do you determine the value of your work right like what is your process for figuring out like what what does is it like just I feel it by intuition? Is it that you do some math for it? What does that look mm-hmm. like? Yeah, I think it it first depends on what kind of product you're you're putting out there. That's definitely first and foremost. Budgeting tools definitely help. Like having my kind of numbers background with engineering, uh, I actually kind of love to do budgeting on projects of like I love budgeting. I know. It's like it, it's exciting in some ways. <laughs> of like doing cost estimate, like actually a lot of Mm. my job is cost estimating too, of like looking at what kind of product do you want to put out there and what can you, what, what can you make with that? Like if you have, you don't necessarily need to come up with a budget in mind first. Like you don't need to be like, I have $500 to spend. Let's see how much I can do it. I, I wouldn't recommend coming from that way. I would recommend thinking about, what kind of product do you want to put out there? And and then thinking backwards from there, being like, how much is that going to cost? And using that as your way to kind of figure out how much to charge for something. And sometimes that's easier. Sometimes it's harder. If it's for a, if it's for a PDF, let's just say it's a PDF game that you are writing yourself, no layout, or you're doing everything yourself. Mm-hmm. We'll put it that way. I really encourage you to track the number of hours you think you're going to do on your project. And I think mm-hmm. that breaks down to the basic levels of how we make our game. First is all of the work before you actually start writing. I think that's something we still undervalue in our prices of games is how much time and effort it can take sometimes to come up with a game. Or even if it took you not too long. It's that experience you've accumulated by playing games Mm -hmm. that has value. And I think in in general, like as a games industry, it's very bare bones when people have come to budgeting, which I mean, I respect because it's, it's a market thing. It's how much people are willing to pay for your product that will drive your budget. And, Mm. but I kind of want to continue this push for capitalizing on that. People realize that designers need to be making a living wage too that when you're a small designer and you have a small audience you need to make sure you're charging the proper amount so you can sustainably live off of that mm-hmm. if that's mm-hmm. what you're doing if you're even designing as someone for your 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 career for me since I'm doing it on the side I don't 
have quite as much pressure about trying to charge the right price. But I'm definitely looking at what other people are doing, looking about what other people are charging for a PDF and comparing that to the numbers I'm doing on my own. So Mm -hmm. if I was writing a game all by myself, I would recommend thinking about the various stages of your design. So that would be the the pre-work you're doing. Just like that could be even you lying in your bed at 1130 PM thinking about what is this game going to be? You're doing work. (laughs) You're, Mm -hmm. you're not relaxing. Think about trying to capture that time and think about how much time you're spending on that. And then when you actually start getting into work on it, like you're working on an outline, think about the various stage, the stages that you're going to be doing and trying to budget how many hours you're going to take on that game. And that would get you to some kind of budget. If you're doing all the work yourself and there's this fallacy that like, Oh, I did it all myself at zero dot. Like I don't need to pay myself because I did it all myself. I highly push back against that because your time is valuable. And Mm -hmm. if you can think about quantifying the amount of time you're spending on something, it doesn't have to be super accurate. You can round or approximate as you need it, but getting an idea of how much time you're spending on something will give you an idea of how much you should be charging for it. And Mm -hmm. depending on where you live, you probably will value your time differently because your costs are different. Like me living here in, in Oakland, Housing is very expensive. If I was living in buttfuck nowhere in New Mexico, maybe I would have a third of that or something. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. thinking about your your day-to-day costs as well, if you're doing this as a full-time designer, and think about what you would actually charge for your time and using that as a baseline. Mm-hmm. If you're pulling resources from outside, like you need to hire a layout person, you need to hire a graphic designer. I think, I mean, that's a big one. It's like graphic design or illustrators. Those people also have their need to be making money as well. Getting quotes on and looking at what people are charging on the internet, asking people in design communities, if you're not part of the draw your dice discord, you should do it. Cause there's a lot of really awesome people in there that I'm sure if you asked a very pointed question on like, I don't even know how much an artist charge or like if you need help with those kinds of questions, there are designers out there in lots of discord communities that will help you figure out costs. Mm -hmm. If you approach them (laughs) considering their time that Mm -hmm. you you don't want to like get into a big long conversation if they don't want to, but if you have a very specific question for them, I'm sure most people would be very happy to to answer that, especially in Mm -hmm. a discord context. So Mm -hmm. I think budgeting is a, a good good approximation for how much you should be charging for something and then figuring out how many, how many copies could you realistically sell? That's Mm. something I did. I did with Hanukkah goblins was talking with professional one awesome person to talk to. If you need resources is Jason Pitry of uh, Genesis of legend publishing. Jason offered me a lot of help with Hanukkah goblins of like, should I even do a physical run? If I did a physical run, how many copies should I get having the, cause there's a lots of questions like that when you're a new designer and that was really helpful. So I encourage you to, I mean, look around Twitter, see who's offering, just ask to offer advice and talk about projects. Cause there are people out there and just keep, keep looking. So those are the things I would think about when I'm pricing I'm pricing something. There is there is a YouTube channel I watch called The Future with Chris Doe. It's not just Chris Doe. Chris has a very mm-hmm. large team, but they are sort of a graphics design company. They do logos and website design and a ton of stuff. 
but they have a lot of segments talking about like value pricing and how to budget as a creative right? and to sort of be additive to what you were talking about. Not that I've made a game, but I think a lot about like how to create like a sustainable creative career. Like even for the podcast, as I think yeah. about how to monetize it or find ways to do it in a way that works for me. One of the things that you touched on was like, it's oh the pricing should always be relative to your lifestyle, right? Like mm-hmm. if you are living in California, that's going to look di- very different in like making a year's sustainable versus living in Ohio for me in Cleveland. Like I'm sure our right. house pricing differences are vastly different. In fact, I almost guarantee it. But, you know, small segment, like content warning for like numbers. I know some people don't like to hear numbers stuff, but this is just sort of like to give an example of what I think about when I think about making a creative career for myself. So my sort of rough total budget for all my expenses over 365 days, 12 months of the year is roughly a little under 20 grand. So when I think about making a career for myself. I sort of work backwards. I also do a very like reverse engineer. What do Mm -hmm. I need to uh, do to survive and make this a job? And so I break that up over months or over weeks. Like what do I have to do or what, what should I be looking at price wise for different stuff? Like what is my cost for sponsorship ads? And then how long could I do a sponsorship ad for on a podcast before I have to get a new one? Right. Or even with games, it's like if I'm looking at bringing in, you know, a support staff, an artist, editors, other writers, like I have to get their quotes and think about getting myself paid on top of that. So there's a lot of pieces, moving pieces around that. So that's, you know, when we talk about itch funding earlier or the difference Mm -hmm. between Kickstarter, if you're sort of doing it by yourself, you can use itch funding to sort of figure out what you should focus your energy on, right? If you have a bunch of like projects in mind, you can put out a bunch of ash cans and pieces like that and go, okay, there are like 50 people who sort of like went to altruistic route and spent like five, like $500 on this game. My next tier level was to do like the adventure for this game. I guess I can do that now. Like that's where the focus of my work is. For me, when I think about this, it's like, okay, I have to make like 20 grand a year. Really, truly, you should not be making just like the bare minimum for your living <laughs> costs. Just, I wanted to put that out there. Like, I think Chris talks about how you should have like, of your total income should be like your necessities of living, right? If you're working on like the absolute minimum, this is what it should look like for comfortability should be 50% of what you need is what you need to live. So $20,000 for me would be my 50%. The other 50% should be like 20% of like loose spending stuff that you're going to have throughout the year, right? Like I'm not making $40,000 on January, right? (laughs) $40,000 is coming to me over the course of 12 months. So there has to be something for like, health stuff, right? Like healthcare or emergency car fixing or whatever that, you know, something happens to the house, God forbid, right? Something happens to anything really. And then 30% is sort of like your extra stuff. So this is like the things that help you execute on those things. So it's like your programs for design. It is your internet. It is your anything that's like sort of helping feed your career should also Mm -hmm. be a consideration and not doubled up as like your life expenditures. That should be different. So for me, I'm like, okay, I need, I, sh- I want to make something like 40 grand a year. So working backwards, what would that look like if this were like a pie in the sky? If I was like commanding the prices I wanted to command, how much would I have to make? And then sort of work my way up from there. So that's how I would like think about pricing in terms of like figuring out how much you should charge. And the reason I say it like that is because there are a lot of people out there who are doing 
pay what you want, or which is a fine model in some cases. If you have a lot of games at your disposal, if you have a lot of mm-hmm. content at your disposal, pay what you want is great because you get someone in the door, right? You get their foot in the door for like, oh, this is a free game. I really like this. Let's check out their other stuff, right? Being the the person or the brand that the publishing company that they're going for, but. You know, it's also under consideration that if you don't have that, well, don't don't charge two dollars for a game you spent a month on. Like and I mean, like an actual month (laughs) of right. That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense to me. Like you put a lot if you're doing it solo, you did the layout, you did custom art, even if it's like if you're like, man, this isn't really, I don't care. Like you put art in there to get your idea across. You put creative mm-hmm. energy to get your idea across. $3 on a month long write up is not equivalent. I get like, no matter where you, no. this is speaking to the vacuum in America, but no matter where you live here in America, there's no reason that, that that project should be $3, right? If you're putting like a single page supplement out there for something, maybe, but that's still like maybe worth more than $3 for sure. So I, what I want to add to, to Max here in, in, in what Max was saying is that it, it has to be respectful to if you're trying to make this a business, it has to be respectful to your lifestyle. And that's gonna be scary. You you're gonna get a lot of feedback from some gatekeepery buttholes out there who are like, <laughs> Why are you charging so much for this PDF? It doesn't even have art in it. Like it does like and that's what they sound like, right? Like that's what the <laughs> red frog sounds like inside Brain Trust Joke. But it's Join it's the Brain like, Trust Discord too. You'll get yeah, it. Join the Lots of cool people, lots of great, great crossroads server for sure. Uh, Lots of great minds come there, but don't be, don't, don't do that. Don't do that to yourself. Don't listen to those people of like your game's never going to make it if it costs more than $5. Like that's not true at all. And we see it time and time and time again on Kickstarter projects, on these itch funding projects that are coming out there on people who take themselves seriously when it comes to the pricing of their games, they are making money. There is no doubt about that. So to undersell yourself is really you're you're choosing to to succumb to those gatekeepers, I think. And I know that's maybe a, a harsh sweeping statement for me to say, but I really want people to take take the value of their art seriously. Like, yeah. I want you to succeed. I want you to put... I want you to be able to go to your Twitter profile or your LinkedIn and say the words, I work as a game designer. Like, if you <laughs> choose to do that, I want you to be able to put it in there and make that sustainable for yourself. So that's just, that's the energy I'm putting out there. That's the harsh Jeremy energy. Do it. Like, I think if you can find a, a designer who is a similar part of their career or like mm-hmm. similar, like, if you want to like consumer base, like thinking about mm-hmm. how many people who would be willing to, to buy your game, look around at their itch sites and like try and find like three or four, pick the mm-hmm. highest price you see. And that should be the, <laughs> the, the, the game you charge at. And yeah, if it's, if it's something you felt like you spent a significant amount of time on, like not just like an hour on a Google doc and you put it up, but like, Mm-hmm. That game should be no less than five dollars if you're in a low cost area, and eight no less than eight in a mm-hmm. eight dollars if you're in a higher cost area because that's going to start pushing us in the right direction. And mm-hmm. there is some fallacy on people buying games for the price. I think because we're mm-hmm. in the indie space, 
most people are buying games because a they think it looks really cool or mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. a combination of b if they know that person of like they yeah. knew them through twitter they knew a mutual friend and they're like i just want to support you for you and maybe because the game is also cool like it could be a combination <laughs> of those two yeah. but in general because we're talking about plus or minus a couple dollars most people don't have that level of price sensitivity. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if we all start kind of pushing the price higher to more of a living wage, that's going to help designers who are doing this full time. So even if you yourself aren't doing it full time, it's important to think about these things because you're a part of this market too, that mm-hmm, you don't want mm-hmm. to, you, you want to be supporting the people actively supporting them if they're doing this full time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, I always think about how, like, in the art community, there are a lot of people who are, like, really doing free labor for for big companies out there mm-hmm. or, or something to that effect. And it's like, you know, people are saying, like, yeah, you'll never get hired if you charge rates like that as a freelance artist. I was like, weird. What if all of the freelance artists charged, like, a minimum $1,000 mm-hmm. for a project, right? Like. Right. That would be the minimum. That would be like the low end. And they really wouldn't have a choice because here's the thing, like we're addicted to the form of marketing we have now for a lot of companies. If a graphic designer is going to command a a minimum thousand all across the board, tough luck, giant corporation. Like I'm going to whisper a beautiful beautiful word to you, Jeremy. Unions. (laughs) Unions. He, uh, we need a game security. design union. That yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm putting that also out in the ether. It's already been out there, but that is something we got to work towards because that is one way we can start helping that as well. Is yeah, if we have minimum rates of charge for people who are part of the unionized game designers, there's a lot of benefits that a union could provide. Obviously, yeah. like anything, it's not a panacea. Like it's not going to solve everything. Yeah, but yeah. if we have some collection it provides us two things it provides like cost as like an idea of cost as well but also shows Mm -hmm. some legitimacy too if if you're a designer that's already part of a union like that shows you're serious about being a designer that's Mm -hmm. a cool thing so i i love the u word i know some people like the u word (laughs) no i i've there's a long time where i really thought about like running a restaurant industries union to really Mm -hmm. like stop restaurants from harboring and wage stealing from their like, Oh, uh, sorry. That's the whole, that's a whole other podcast. But yeah, I I am, I am here for, for really figuring out how to execute on making sure everyone has a baseline minimum for creative fields for sure. For sure. Uh, I'm, I, for sure. Like, <laughs> like there's no, no offense or buts about it. Amazing. Yes. Get sell your work for your worth. Don't, Definitely. don't undersell yourself with, with that. That brings us to the end of the show. Top of the we're show, here. end of the show. Yeah, oh. we're here. We finally made it. And I didn't even know, you know, we halfway through this, I'm sure I don't, it's not going to get left in here, but you know, we, we looked up and like, Oh wow, we're at an hour 20. Let's, <laughs> let's get to the next, <laughs> next bit here. <laughs> We gotta wrap up. Um, Max, it has been an absolute pleasure 
having you on the show. Final sort of like sign out things. Let people know where they can find you. I didn't remind you to give plugs at the beginning of the show. So maybe I'll do like an overdub or something like that. <laughs> but yeah, g- give us some plugs. Tell us where you can find your stuff. All the links that Max is about to provide to us will be in the show notes for your access peoples. Yes. I think the best place to find find me, maybe not right now because I'm not tweeting much, but my Twitter is the best place. Everything is linked from there. Uh, mm-hmm. So my Twitter is at Hydroforge. And that title, that tag came from the water side, but also like forging designs. So yeah. like it's, I, I'm, I'm pretty proud that it came up with that with my friends. I get it. I get um, it. <laughs> yeah. And then my itch page is linked through there as well. So Come check it out. I have my Hanukkah Goblins is for sale there. You can also come buy physical copies. I still have them sitting in my apartment. You can think about they've they've been sitting next to me. I even have Goblin stickers you can buy. They're so cute. Um, I can say the stickers live on the acclaimed designer Vidicia Valetti's computer. It's very cute. Um, I love these little stickers. So yeah, come check out my itch page. Hanukkah Goblins is there. I even have uh, one free game on there as well about remembering Grusau, which is is actually about um, the Holocaust as well. So that's a free, gosh, what's the word? But it's a, a free online game you can play. So go and check that one out as well. And just everything else on there. Amazing. Amazing. Well, everyone, thank you for coming out today. As always, I appreciate your continued patronage on the show. And I had a great time listening to Max, and I hope you did too. And we will see you next time. Say bye to the people, Max. Bye to the people. Bye to the people. (laughs) Don't harmonize with me. It's going to be bad. Oh, Uh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I was a bad kid. All right, that's a wrap. Thank you for taking the time to sit down and hang out with Max and I. We really appreciate it. You can find links and resources down below in the show notes, such as getting in touch with Max or other episodes with similar topics. If you want to be a part of the conversation, please come and join the community Discord server. Also, make sure to subscribe to the Draw Your Dice Patreon, where you can get access to early releases of episodes from as soon as we interview. Thanks again for stopping by. And as always, I will catch you next time.